listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box, where you get the inside scoop on the steps action takers and decision makers take to align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. We focus on the mantra, no labels, no limits, no excuses. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Hey there, this is Sarah, your host of the No Labels, No Limits podcast, where you know we talk with inspiring guests who have challenged limiting beliefs and labels to pursue and accomplish personal and professional goals. And sometimes what we see on the surface of someone is not all that lays below the surface. So we are going to find out um, a lot about that from today's guest, Jennifer Standish. And I will say in our very brief pre-chat, um, I actually can see how relevant Jennifer is. And I actually felt very connected to her the minute I saw her face on my screen. There's just that vibe that Jennifer has. But let me tell you a little bit about her. Jennifer is a personal transformation expert and the author of Permission Granted, Live Your Full Life of Joy and Peace. And it that's a book that offers readers practical advice on how to create, how to create an amazing life, regardless of their past experiences. So get it, no labels, no limits, you guys. Um, she is also the founder and president of Give Yourself Permission, which helps women create new rules for their lives so they can overcome limiting attitudes that prevent, prevent them from achieving career success and finding happiness. Jennifer's goal is to help women rebuild their lives after a suicide attempt, so think about that. That's a big goal. And she says she likes anything that helps people get unstuck and gain clarity. Sarah, you got to slow down because you are having trouble alliterating today. <laughs> but you will soon learn that Jennifer is so much more than her outward accomplishments. And with that, welcome to the podcast, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Well, let's just dive right in because, um, you know, I can go in a whole bunch of directions with you, but let's start with your beginning. How did you come a, what's a little bit about your backstory and what inspired you to write this book? Sure. So my introduction to the world in order was this. I was raised by a narcissistic mother and an enabling father. And I had two siblings that bonded with each other and with either parent. So I was really the odd man out, coupled with the fact that I was my mother's main enemy. So, so that was my childhood. And it's no surprise that by 16, I was suicidal and had eating disorders. But I graduated from college um, and as suffered imposter syndrome to the degree that I had a nervous breakdown and had to leave corporate America. And I just immersed myself into therapy. So, but I was extremely codependent, had social anxiety, had uh, um, uh, panic attacks. Uh, and really what I did throughout my twenties to my mid forties was create the foundation that I should have gotten in my childhood, I was building that foundation to then go ahead and build an amazing life. And that took 20 years for me. It took 20 years, right? So lots of mistakes, 
lots of paths that I went down. I know I was an artist for a while. Um, I, I've had nine, I've pivoted nine times in my life, <laughs> you know, just because as an adult having to support myself, I kind of had to try everything in order to decide whether or not it was, it was, it was me because when I entered therapy at 23, I said to my therapist, there's only two things I know about myself. I'm blonde and I like pizza and I have nothing else. And so that journey. So I understand people who have anxiety, who have imposter syndrome, who um, are constantly second guessing themselves. The things that the uh, in, the negative internal monologue, like this, I mean, everything. So I'm in this unique position of being able to help people who are coming off of a suicide attempt because I did try to commit suicide. Um, in 2019. Um, and so, so it's like, I'm at a point where, you know, God bless, I lived through all of that because now I can turn around and, and help people who are experiencing it and maybe shave off some of the healing time. I don't think it should take somebody 20 years, but it did take me. Well, I'd like to acknowledge a couple of things. And I have a question. So when you said you were your mom's enemy, right? How does that show up in a young oh, person's life? Right. So uh, I, I, she from the was very threatened of me and was very competitive. So I was never allowed to win. I was never allowed, you know, there was always, she was always topping me. She was, oh, right. So, but her, I, you know, I was the happy baby that every, that made other people want to have babies. And so that right there, even at two years old was a direct challenge to her role as princess of the house. So what she did was convince me and everyone around me that I had suffered brain damage at birth and that I would never amount to really anything and that I was dumb. So I grew up thinking I was dumb, dumb, dumb. And I, and my grades reflected it uh, in, you know, kindergarten through 12th. Um, I, you know, uh, and um, I was also the only one in the family who realized the family was dysfunctional. So I was also the crazy one, the crazy dumb one that did things for attention. Um, that was that like ruined family vacations, you know, I was the problem. And so, and, and, but I was the one, this, the truth speaker, like I was the one that was like, no, this is not right. This is not. So it was, it was a systematic destruction of my will to live. And it became really impossible to thrive. There was no, there was no, I was not thriving. Um, we were, narcissistic parents use their children uh, for their own, you know, um, for their own satisfaction. And so we were used and manipulated and exploited. And when we weren't of, of use to her, then we were kind of cast aside. So, but I got it the worst. I definitely got it the worst. My sister suffered as well, but as the enemy, she came right after me. And I believe that I was brain damaged up until my mid twenties in therapy. So thank you for being honest about that, because I can imagine people listening, young people in particular, and I'm thinking of a few young people that I know that have really struggled. And um, to just understand that when you feel like you're the outsider calling truth to what you're seeing, um, it can be scary. And when you're young and you don't have life experience, and even when we're older, right, that's that whole thing like of being canceled. It's like, well, what happens if I'm cast out, right? Yeah. 
So, but especially for young people, because we don't have like the circles of support around us yet where we can say, peace out, I'm going, I got friends, I, you know, I can figure it out. Um, the other thing I wanted to say is when you say it shouldn't take 20 years, it wouldn't have taken 20 years had you been allowed to thrive and supported from a child because you started in your mid-20s, right? There's your 20 years of personal development. Exactly. The foundation that I should have received as a child, you know, the 20 years, um, I then had to create yeah. for myself. And, and really, narcissists, they hijack their children's childhoods, but they also sabotage their adult lives. Because I arrived in, in, in corporate America, and I just mirrored whatever my boss wanted. So I was a great employee because I, but I mirrored everybody. What did, what did the boyfriend want? You know, I was codependent. So it was like, so I had no moral code. I had no idea what I liked, what I wanted, nothing. And so what happened to me was I reached a point in my career where I was expected to have opinions and I didn't because I was a shell of a human being. I had no opinions. And so I kind of crumbled and was rendered unable to go to work. There was the imposter syndrome was through the roof. The anxiety was unlivable. And so I just kind of collapsed. And um, because I had nothing, I had no opinions. I, I had nothing. That so, would feel terrifying, Jennifer. It that was. Absolutely terrifying. It would feel like being in a black abyss. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And and I was talking to uh, a client the other day. I said it was almost like, walking into um, Baskin Robbins and, and, and being told or being asked, well, what's your favorite flavor of ice cream? And it's like, I don't know. I have to try them all at, at once, right? And so, and with that comes so many mistakes. So I- They're not mistakes, right? They feel they're not mistakes, mistakes but boy, but boy, to be able to like, you know, when, you, when you're a child and you go into Baskin Robbins, you probably, your parents are probably like, okay, you got four flavors, <laughs> pick one. And then over the course of the 20 years, you get exposed to all 32 flavors and you arrive with some favorites. Exactly. But imagine being an adult walking in and having to figure this out. It's overwhelming. It is. Um, it, it was incredibly overwhelming and so many mistakes and, and lessons. I can look back and say, yes, they're lessons, but, but it, it need not have had happened. Right. I mean, to have to create the foundation of, you know, who you are, what you like, what your moral codes are, what, you know, all this while having to support yourself while having to navigate the dating scene. While, I mean, it was, there's a lot you got to figure out even if you come from a functional family, but imagine if you don't. So, so I was, you know, I look back and I go, oh, God bless that, that poor child, that poor well, girl. And yes, God bless. And thank God that you're standing here or sitting here with me on this conversation today, right? Yeah. Because well, the world would miss out on you if you had succeeded in suicide. Thank you. Well, the the book is 91 rules or beliefs that I was given as a child that I had to change in order to frame myself. So when people read through this book, uh, I, what my hope is, is that some of these permissions that I were, will resonate. Um, and, and but some of them are bananas because narcissists are, you know, are bananas. And so there's one that's like, you're allowed to flush the toilet at night. 
that was a big one that, you know, um, but then there are other ones where, you know, it's, it's the book is organized in categories, you know, self-love, family, career, you know, all these different, um, uh, you know, different life categories. So um, and people when they read it will say, gosh, you know, you say these things that nobody else says out loud um, and they walk. It's not a depressing book. It's actually really funny and entertaining because it's always, you know, this is the permission I had to give myself and this is where it comes from. This is the crazy story behind it. And so, um, yeah, it's the book came what I really wanted to do initially was I just wanted to do a book about, you know, give yourself permission, women, give yourself permission, men. It was going to be almost like chicken soup for the soul kind of money grab. There was not going to be that much journalistic integrity to it. And I had lots of publishers be like, yes, we will do this. We will do this whole series, you know, because it could be teenagers. It could be, it could be anything. Right. Uh, and I wrote out the first 20 and they were heartbreaking. And I was like, oh, and so I sent it to my editor and I said, this is not what we talked about at all, but this is the first 20. And I just thought I'd send it. And she wrote me back and she goes, no, this is the book that needs to be written. It's not the other stuff. It's not but a wise book. woman. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so that's where it, it kind of came from. And now I do workshops with people off of the book to just, you know, help them say, let's, what, what were you taught to believe? What crazy nonsense are you programmed to believe? And you have an opportunity to rewrite those because those beliefs, if they don't work for you, if they're not supporting, if they don't help you expand your life, if they don't bring you joy, let's write them down and then create new ones. So what do you say to people who come back when you give them that offer to open their life, change their story, say to you, no, that's just how I am. You know, that's how I was born or this is how I'm hardwired. I mean, what do you say to someone? Because you know, that's not the only path. Right. So I tell people, first of all, you have full control over your thoughts and take control because you will then be a victim to your subconscious and you'll be constantly recreating your childhood drama. So you can take a look at a situation and, and accept the fact that there are a number of ways to interpret a particular situation. And we're programmed as human beings to be very pessimistic, to look at the bad, because that's what kept us alive when there were dinosaurs. Around. It takes more effort to find a positive outlook, honestly. Right. It does. It takes, but it's so worth it because mindset is what determines the quality of your life and your happiness. So recognize that you have choices and you're choosing very negative. You're choosing either to not take control or you're choosing something negative, but let's look at the positive and let's see how we can re reinterpret life. And mental health is a lot like physical health. You got to do it every day. Just like you go to the gym every day or you exercise every day. It's something that's never going to go away. So first, look at your choices and accept responsibility for them. And then look at the other options. You have other options. So let's look at those. What options? And, and the thing is, is that it's all opinions. It's all, it's all you, you know, there's no right or wrong. But so if there's no right or wrong, let's choose things. Let's choose to look at life in a way that is 
um, supportive and loving and kind and expansive as opposed to. So once you start, once I start working with people and, and they start to realize that they do have control over how they can interpret virtually, virtually any situation, then they start thinking about, well, why am I always going to the negative? And I don't have to go to the, I can look at the positive. So it takes time and you almost have to become an observer of your life. Um, uh, and, but, but, you know, it, it can become, it becomes second nature where when a situation happens, you absorb it, you react, and then you think, well, you know what, this is a choice. Do I, do I like the choice I've chosen? And, and, and that then is where people go, no, because if you go down the rabbit hole of, oh, this is so bad, this is so bad, this is so bad, nothing happens in a rabbit hole other than you just beat yourself up and you feel bad. You don't move forward. You don't find solutions. You don't find opportunities. No, so nothing. So don't go down the rabbit hole. So a lot of times my clients will, you know, they go down the rabbit hole and then I teach them to back themselves up. And then eventually they don't even go down the rabbit hole. They just it becomes stop. one of those things like, whoops, I know where that's going to take me nowhere. And it, and it will take you nowhere. And so sometimes, you know, I'll take, I'll be like, okay, you get five minutes in the rabbit hole, but then I'm going to back you right up. <laughs> because, I'm going to be the rabbit hole person at the bottom that snap and get out. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. And I don't want to minimize what you're saying there because there's some things you said that I think often, and I will hear people say this, it's like, well, I've been working on this. I'm thinking you're never not going to work on it. You're never not going to work. You will, your ability to be quicker increases with the things that become obvious to you, because what you said is you have to be an observer, right? So when you learn to see, yeah. then you can go, oops, I know where this is going unless I decide not to be a victim and I choose something different. Right. So once you get that layer done, there will be another thing that comes up and you're going, oh, whoops, here we go again. Exactly. It's, it's, it's just like physical health. You've yeah. got to stay on top of it. And my when I went into therapy as a you know 23 year old, I thought that I would come out of therapy with like a mental health certificate and I would be done. <laughs> And I would be like, you're certified healthy. You're, you know, and it was like, oh no, 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 no. Uh, I still, um, I recently moved to Los Angeles. I sold everything I owned, drove across country, moved to LA, and I still, the rabbit holes are everywhere. And I, but I choose, I choose not to go down, but I do have to sit with myself and go, okay this is a trigger or this, this, you know, my money issues come up and my financial security stuff comes up and, and, and um, it, it still takes work, but what's the alternative? Misery. So Jennifer, are you comfortable talking about your suicide attempt? Yes. Okay. Oh yes. I mean, thank you. For it's very that. funny actually. That comes <laughs> That comes across weird, but um, yeah. But I know it's it's like one of those taboo things. You know, people feel super uncomfortable. Um, and when you said when we were in the pre-chat, you know, that you're the right person for me, and I said in more ways than one, um, I started in the nonprofit community way back, a few decades back, working a hotline for suicide prevention, and 
I remember going out into the middle schools and talking to young people, right? And people going, oh, they don't have problems. I'm thinking, go sit in a classroom and ask them because they do. And, but that's been decades. And I'm not sure we've made a lot of progress in people's willingness to talk and be open because there's that panic, like, well, what do I do if someone tells me that, you know? So can you talk to us a little bit about how you got up to that precipice and you attempted Gratefully, you failed. This is one failure I'm happy you had. Um, Can you share with our audience a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So I was a high-functioning, suicidally depressed person the majority of my adult life. And what that looked like was... I was functioning, I was succeeding, I was building businesses, I was, you know, when I worked in corporate America, I was very successful, but, but it was all a pretend. It was almost as if I was walking on the edge of a cliff, and on one side was the land, and that was all the success, and that was the celebrations, but, I, but then there was the cliff, and I, and so, but that had been my whole life, and so I, people that are very high, people that are high functioning, they don't tell anybody, which is why it's always a surprise. It's like, oh my God, I never would have thought. And so the first thing is I just want to tell people is if you, if you're a survivor of that type of experience or somebody that you've loved out of the blue committed suicide and you beat yourself up about not seeing the signs, well, I'll tell you, there probably were no signs because people like me We don't tell people because we don't want help. We don't want to out ourselves. We don't want to explain to people how bad it is and that we're trying to figure out how to kill ourselves because we don't want to be institutionalized. We don't want to, right? We've already made the decision that we don't want to be here. And so now we're looking for a way to execute that decision to somehow figure it out. So we're not going to, I certainly wasn't going to call a friend and be like, and, and discuss it because I just wanted out and I didn't want anybody to interfere with that or try to convince me how wonderful my life was because I just didn't want to hear it. So what happened to me was I, it was like almost like the trifecta of stress. And I was an Airbnb host. I had just started a sales consulting business. I was a woodworker. And so I was doing my woodworking. I was teaching how to succeed in Etsy classes. Like I had the hustle and um, it was one day in the barn. I was working on an item and it kind of exploded. And I realized, oh my God, like everything. I was preparing my house to have my first Airbnb guest. I had money issues and so I was really worried about like that and so it was just it was just like that was the straw that broke the camel's back and I just looked up at my house which was a cabin on the Hudson River surrounded by wisteria and I had a pergola I mean it was gorgeous and every cell in my body just said no more no more we cannot live with this level of stress and anxiety and we're hustling and we've been hustling for years. I worked four days, four years, every day for four years, I did this hustle and I was barely scraping by and it was exhausting. And so when that thing exploded, I was just like, I'm done, I'm done. And the pain of suicidal depression is enormous. And so when your lungs tell you, 
you've got four more breaths, Jennifer, and we're out. Like we want out of this hit reset, just kill yourself, get it. Like, and then who knows, you know, the afterlife is so much better than where we are right now. Like, why are you doing this to us? Please, please just end this. And so it was an overwhelming physical response of, yes, we cannot continue one more moment. And when you're in that type of emotional pain, your teeth hurt, your eyelashes hurt, like everything hurts. And I looked at the hefty garbage bags and I said, I'm just gonna put this over my head with some duct tape. And I thought that I would just go to sleep and die. That's not how asphyxiation works. <laughs> it's actually a terrible way to kill yourself. It's miserable. And it never really would have worked. But that's what I thought was, I'm just going to put this over my head. And I laid down on the barn floor where I was working. And I just thought I'd fall asleep and die. And what happened was, I every, every inhale, the plastic touched my face. And I was getting near annoyed. <laughs> like I can't even die in peace I just can't even die like this it was like Chinese water torture and I had this this dialogue in my head of like oh my god like I I've taken control I'm ending this life I want out of this body and I can't I just die in peace like what is wrong with me can't I just die in peace and this plastic was making me crazy and and I was like, I, I, I no, I, I can't do. So I started to pull the plastic up because I figured if I got more plastic up with each inhale, um, it maybe it wouldn't touch my face. And I did. And I go, oh, that's lovely. But now I have this, I ruined the seal. So now all this fresh air blows in. And I'm like, this is a mess. This is an absolute mess. I'm aborting this attempt. I'm just stopping it. Like, no. So I took it off. And I'm like, I'm an overachiever. I succeeded everything. But I never researched this method before. And I had spent decades trying to find a way to kill myself that didn't involve pain and that was guaranteed to succeed. So which is why I never tried to kill myself because there was no way, right? So I'm like, I just need to go up and research this more because I didn't do this right. So I just went up to my house, you know, walked up the hill and got on the internet and did some research and realized, oh, no, <laughs> no, this would have been quite painful. And it actually wouldn't have worked because what happens is, is when the carbon dioxide and oxygen levels in your blood change, at a certain point, you become rabid and I would have ripped the plastic off my face. And which is why in, in movies, when you see people who have died of asphyxiation, their hands and legs are always tied behind them, right? So I just started laughing and was just like, what an idiot. <laughs> what an absolute idiot this was. Well, you can laugh in retrospect, but I just want to touch that part of you that was so, that your eyebrows or your eyelashes, Done. teeth hurt. Done. I mean, just to be in that desperation and then, you know, yeah. to not have completed suicide, thankfully. Yeah. Right. When you settled down into that, I mean, you mentioned in our pre-chat that you had like a spiritual experience. Yes. Was that at that time or later? That was so that so this so it, it the what happened was I 
just got back on the horse and kind of trudged through the next six months. And as I always did was I can pick myself up and I can, I'm a survivor. So you didn't change anything. You just kept going. I just, I just kept going. I just got back up on the horse and, um, continued high stress, high anxiety. Right. And what happened was six months later, and there are no words in the English language to accurately describe this experience, but it was very much like a near death experience where I was asleep, but then all of a sudden I was out of my body and I was pure consciousness. And there was another entity there who presented itself as God. And I'm not a Christian. I I don't believe God created the earth in six days and right, like that's not me. But I sat there with God and God said, I want you to sell everything you own And I want you to move to Los Angeles where you will heal people with your undivided attention. And I said, okay. And we then went to Los Angeles and we hovered over people who couldn't see us, but we were there with them. And I said, I will. And then I went, we went back to my house. I went back in my body and I woke up and was like, what was that? that was not a dream. That was, that was, that was something else. And the urgency inside me was so profound that I just started, I got to sell this. 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 Right. Like it was, I was moving, but sure enough, couple hours later, I'm on the phone with every single one of my friends, every business associate, every one of my clients. I'm calling everyone I know and saying, I need 10 minutes of your undivided attention. Something has just happened and I don't know what to do about it. And everyone that I spoke with said, Jennifer, I believe that you believe you had this experience. Absolutely. And if I had a similar experience, I would move. Like you just can't get a visit from God and be right. And, And I was like, I know. That's what I think. But the human part of me was like, I need confirmation. And I need confirmation from like 100 people. Well, you're a researcher. You're going to go, okay, wait, where's, let me, let me validate this, right? Instead yeah. of going, okay, let's just go with the overwhelming right. evidence and feeling. Right. And so, but my dear friend who's an intuitive healer said, no, let the dust settle, figure this out because you just started the sales consulting business, you just start, like, and you have a lot to leave. You're losing, you will lose a lot. And then you'll end up in LA with the exact same questions that you have now. So stay in your home on the Hudson river with your sailboat, with this life, right? Figure it out and then move. And it took me two years. And what had happened was my sales consulting business. I'm an expert cold caller. I'm phenomenal at it. And I was teaching people how to cold call with my methodology, which is ideal for women and introverts and people with call reluctance. And when working with those people, their fear of the phone and call reluctance, that ended up being a deep dive into their childhoods. Like, what is this? And what happened was I watched my clients the, the trajectory of their lives completely changed 
when they healed and they became great cold callers and great salespeople, but they also also quit their jobs and started other companies and, and has said, learning how to cold call changed my life. And it wasn't cold calling. It was all the healing that had been done. Sure. Well, that, and that's when you cold call someone, you're showing up. And yeah, it's like how that's a vulnerable thing to do. It's very vulnerable, but what but when they but when they healed, mm -hmm. and I said, okay, this is not sales consulting. This is not sales coaching. This is transformational coaching, yeah. and that's when and that took two years for that business to evolve into that realization, and that's when I set it aside and said, no, I'm a I'm a healer. I'm a transformational coach. This is what I'm. This is this is LA. And so I put my house on the market It sold the very first day to an amazing couple who the husband was a woodworker. Um, the, you know, they accepted responsibility for my feral cat colony that I had been taking care of for 16 years. They fell in love with the house. They, they looked at it as almost like they were stewards of the land. And I was just transferring, you know, responsibility to them. Uh, it was, a, you know, and, uh, and I sold it for, I sold the house for more money than I could have imagined. And I was on the road in two months. I said, all right. I, so I sold everything I owned, clothing, shoe, like I arrived with two pairs of shoes and heirlooms. And that was it. And I took six weeks and I visited friends and clients and business associates along the way. I spent a week in the desert under, you know, about 10 miles south of the Grand Canyon. And I would go into the Grand Canyon Park at night. It was exquisite. And then I arrived in LA. And I've been here now for eight months. So a big, brave journey. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I don't, it, it, I had nothing really keeping me there in that house. I was single, still single. Um, and I, and I had really hard time meeting, meeting people. And, and I just said, you know, I can stay here and I can be a transformational coach, but I'm never going to get married again. I'm, I felt like, and this, and that's a limiting belief, but I just, you know, I had been single for so long and I was like, you know, I really, I need to transform. I want a big life part of growing up that was always a disconnect for me was deep down I always knew that I was destined for something great and being told I was dumb and not going to amount to anything there was this huge disconnect so I was like no 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 I need to transform my life I I I need to leave this person in New York and 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 and, and move on to this next bigger life that um, is, is my ultimate destiny. Um, and so it was exciting and I had plenty of money in the bank. And I, so it wasn't, it didn't require as much courage as you might think, um, but it was a conscious, I'm leaving this person behind and I am now embarking on this new chapter of my life that is going to be much bigger and, uh, uh, and is it is firmly dedicated on helping women take them from the dark into the light, help them, show them how they can have bigger, more successful, more fulfilling lives filled with joy. And what that means, I wasn't entirely sure, and I'm still kind of figuring it out. 
Um, but as long as I stay on that path, I'm a light worker and this is my destiny and that's what I'm just living. I'm just, and I'm figuring it out as I go. So Jennifer, as we wrap this up, um, if you had one word of wisdom or one word of encouragement for someone who you just described, um, who's in that spot and they feel stuck or hopeless, what would that be? Well, I would love for them to call me and I'd love for them to work with me. <laughs> well, I, I would too. Them. But the reality is that when you're that dark, you weren't picking up a phone call in it. No, you're right? not. So what no, might not. help them pick up a phone? I think that to recognize that you you have more options and more choices than you realize. And in that dark space, you can't see it. But you have full control over your life and you do have, um, you have a lot more options than you may realize. And at least, you know, reach out to somebody to, so that because you become so narrow, you can become so focused on, on the negatives that you fail to see the opportunities. And we have a lot more opportunities than, than we often can see and to if you can pull yourself back a bit and realize that um, even in the darkest hour, um, in fact, that's probably when you have the most opportunities is when you have nothing to lose. And that's when you're you know the most free. And so take advantage of that and um, and realize that maybe you're going through what you're going through because ultimately you're a healer. And that you can take this experience and then turn around and help other people because I will say I was a hot mess and I transformed into a, a healer. And maybe somebody may consider themselves a hot mess and in the darkest places, but maybe their challenge is to overcome that and turn around and, and help other people heal in the way that they did as well. So well said, yeah, um, we just don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And we've got to show up and choose, choose yeah. how we want to tell our story or be in our story. Jennifer, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the No Labels, No Limits podcast. I envision that we will be having future conversations. I'd be delighted. Realm or others. I would be absolutely delighted. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach, Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com forward slash No Labels, No Limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Until next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.